Well, this morning, we are going to be taking a detour from our trek through Mark. But as a starting point this morning, I want to set in your mind a matter from our recent look at that gospel. As you recall from our ongoing study of Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the soils, Jesus identifies four soils, four different soils or hearts into which the seed of the gospel is sown. And one of those soils that we were taught about and that Jesus instructs his disciples about is the thorny soil. And this soil represents the preoccupied heart. In Christ's words, the preoccupied heart is the heart that has heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You know, I don't have to search very far, very deep into our lives to find worries, distractions, other concerns that pull our hearts away from the Lord. The world system in which we find ourselves, the days in which we live provide endless avenues for preoccupation. And the fleshliness that remains in us longs to be satisfied. In light of Christ's teaching about the thorny soil and the recognition that there are those tendencies that remain even in believers, we do well to ask, what are our chief concerns in this life? Not what are all of our concerns, but what are the chief concerns? What are to be the main things that we concern ourselves with? And the answer to that question at any given time can reveal hearts that are entangled with preoccupation. What are you most often focused on? What are you most often consumed with? What is most of your time spent doing? Questions such as those. When we look to the scriptures, we find that one remedy for this distraction, one remedy for the preoccupations that ail us is a clear vision of God's future plans. A clear vision of what God says awaits the world and his people. A clear vision of God's unassailable promises about the future. Those promises act as a sickle to the thorny brambles that entangle our hearts, keeping us in love with the world, keeping us preoccupied with the world. The word of God calls Christians to live every day, every moment of every day, actually, in light of the reality that this world as we currently know it will not continue forever. The world as it is currently spinning, operating, functioning, the direction into which it's headed, that will not continue for all time. And because we know that, because Christians know that from the promises of Scripture, we should be living differently. Scripture points out and shows us that God has something in store for this world and he has something in store for believers and that then should impact the way that you live right now. Please take your Bibles and turn or scroll to 2 Peter chapter three. It's funny to say that, but it's appropriate. 2 Peter chapter 3. 
when writing this epistle, Peter was nearing the end of his life and he wants to remind his readers of important matters for their spiritual well-being. In chapter one, he reminds believers that God has provided everything needed for life and godliness. And that as a result of that, Christians are to pursue diligently godliness. He points to the fact that the return of the Lord Jesus is a certainty. And he calls Christians to spiritual sure-footedness, spiritual stability, which we heard sermons about earlier this summer. In chapter two, his focus shifts to warning. He begins to warn the church about deception, false teachers. He exposes the wickedness of the false teachers. He exposes their motivations and then paints a picture of their ultimate judgment. And then as we come to chapter three, Peter provides another reminder. This time, again, about some of the content that the false teachers would bring and the certainty of God's promises. I'm going to read all 18 verses of 2 Peter chapter 3, and then our focus will be specifically on verses 11 through 18. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
Peter begins his closing reminder with a call to remember. He calls Christians to remember the teachings of a trustworthy God. The Old Testament prophets and the later apostolic teaching authorized by Jesus is the word. And that is the word that's to be recalled, always remembered. False teachers are going to come, he says, and they're going to attack God's trustworthiness. They're going to attack the very word that God spoke about the events that would come in the future. Where is the promise of his coming? Everything in the world is continuing on just as it always has been. That's not merely a question of facts and events. They're questioning God's word, which is why Peter emphasizes what they're to listen to. The word emphasizes that they're questioning the promise. Peter thoroughly exposes this attack in chapter three, verses one through 10. And he asserts the certainty of God's word, the certainty of what God has said will happen. The same powerful word that brought everything into existence at creation, the same powerful word that turned the waters of creation loose in judgment is the same word, he says, by which the heavens and earth and all the evil within them will be judged by fire. Verse seven. The promise of his coming is not delayed or slow because of any limit to God's ability to execute his word or his promises. The perceived slowness is because of his patience. And then contrary to that perceived slowness, contrary to the mis- the misguided attempts at explaining the slowness really for deceitful purposes of the false teachers, Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 10. Verse 10 marks the shocking contrast compared to what the false teachers are saying. Everything's gonna continue on as it always has been. Nothing's gonna change. Where's his coming? Peter says, contrary to that notion, contrary to the notion that God is up there slowly trying to figure out what he's gonna do or, or honestly, will he ever do anything that he said he's going to do in the future? Peter says, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief, sudden. And it's going to bring with it absolute cataclysm. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed the earth and its works will be burned up. This isn't merely a comment about what's going to happen to the material things in the world. The works, the sin, the evil that's perpetrated on this earth will be destroyed. Verse 10, Peter uses the same terminology that Jesus used to refer to that coming day like a thief, the same characteristics. Paul picks that up as well. It's going to be sudden. The doubters will never see it coming is the implication of verse 10. Now he doesn't dive into the details of whether he's describing cosmic annihilation. Is everything gonna be destroyed and there'll be nothing left and he's gonna recreate the universe or is this more of some sort of cosmic renewal and regeneration? He doesn't get into those details. Those finer points don't serve his purpose. He's, he's literally describing with stunning language the indescribable. The day is coming and it's going to bring with it unimaginable consequences, a roaring inferno that is beyond description. Those who doubt the promise of that coming day and presume upon their present security will have no place to hide. 
that day, verse 10 says, will bring judgment and destruction upon the ungodly and unrepentant. And after laying that out, he then transitions to verse 11 and takes all of that and that notion, that truth about what awaits, what God has promised, what is certain, and then he directs it at believers. Now in verse 10, he introduces the day of the Lord. And just a brief aside on this, this is an important and complex subject. The day of the Lord. And then there's a parallel in our text in verse 12 called the day of God. Those are the same thing. And it is found this, this idea, this reality, the day, the day of the Lord is in Old Testament prophetic literature. And then it's picked up by the New Testament writers and expanded. It's not a single moment. It's not a single moment. It's not a singular concept. It's multifaceted. But it concerns the climax of redemptive history the final consummation of all that God is working out. It can refer at times in the Old Testament to historical events that portend this final consummation, but most often it points forward to that future day. Some of the aspects of the day of the Lord include a time of ultimate reckoning by God and vindication of his name. Includes the Lord as judge of the earth, bringing his final case against sinful humanity and the just verdict that will be executed. It pictures the Lord as a warrior king, destroying evil, ruling over all, setting nations in order, bringing his kingdom into fulfillment. The imagery, the revelation, the rider on the white horse. It's described as a day of trouble, but also as a day of deliverance. Judgment for the wicked, but salvation for the righteous. It's not just bad. It's got refinement and restoration of the created order. Comprehensively in the scriptures, it could just be summarized as that ultimate time, the ultimate outworking of God's plans where he, the son in particular, is manifest in all of his glory and it's a time of ultimate judgment and ultimate blessing. And Peter presents it very simply in verse 10 and again in verse 12 and simply connects it with the removal of unrighteousness, the removal of evil, and the establishment of righteousness. His reminder is essentially, don't be swayed by the doubting naysayers. Don't be swayed by the passing days on this earth. Don't be swayed by the things that think that they seem they're just gonna continue unchanging into who knows how long. Trust the promises of God. Trust the certainty of his word, the astounding day of the Lord will certainly come. In verse 11, in light of that, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since that's going to happen, since the day of the Lord is a certainty and it's going to be unimaginable judgment on evil, including rearranging of creation in some way, shape, or form, since that happens, how should we live? How should Christians live now in light of the day that's coming then? Because we see clearly through the promises of God the future and all that it will bring, how are we to conduct ourselves every day on this earth carrying out our walk of faith? He's going to go on in these verses to tell the church that we should be more concerned with what remains in us 
than with all that is swirling around us. Our present concerns are to be directed by God's future promises, by God's future plans. He points to the promised and certain coming day of the Lord as the ultimate motivation for what should concern us every day while we wait, while we wait for that day. We're gonna organize our look at these verses, verses 11 through 18, around five instructions that direct our present concerns. Five instructions that direct our present concerns. Remember, the transition from verse 10 into verse 11 is now believers. And it's built on all that he said in refutation of the false teachers, all that he said about what's going to come. And he turns his attention towards Christians. And he gives us instructions that direct our concerns, that direct our lives, that direct what it is that we're consumed with while we're here. The first instruction that directs our present concerns is be expectantly righteous. He calls believers to be expectantly righteous, verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since God has reserved the heavens and earth for fire, since God will judge and destroy all ungodliness, since the earth and its works will be burned up, live in a prescribed way, live in holiness, and godly conduct. This is the main question that drives all of Peter's final instructions in this later. How are we to live? Sort, when he asks what type or what sort of person ought you to be, it's fundamental. It's the characteristics that mark your life. That's what's in view. It's not a momentary concern or a temporary attribute. This is the consistent pattern of your life. So in light of that coming day, Peter says, what ought to characterize your life? It's really a rhetorical question. He's saying, how ought you to live? Holy, of course, in godliness. And he goes on, looking expectantly. The essential characteristics then of a person whose life is directed by God's future promises are holiness. Remember Peter, his readers, 1 Peter 1.15, he's the author that said to Christians to be holy but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Set apart. Believers are to be set apart because of what's coming. They're to be just like their Savior. The Holy One is returning and therefore we're to be holy to meet him. We're to be holy waiting on the Holy One that's coming to get us. Godliness, that's reverent devotion, a fear of the Lord that results in God-pleasing Virtues, God-pleasing conduct. It's the opposite character of those who will be judged at Christ's return. He says, ungodliness is going to be judged. Unrighteousness is going to be judged. Here he says, those who know that that's coming ought to be godly. Verse 12 further elaborates this outlook. That's where we get this notion of expectancy. Those who are motivated to holiness and godliness by what God has promised to bring about in the future are expectant and focused on that coming day. 
Verses 12, 13, and 14 all include this note. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Verse 13, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Verse 14, since you look for these things, expectancy. If the Lord's coming is to motivate us to live holy, then it stands to reason we would be looking forward to and looking for that coming. Expectancy is an integral part of that motivation. We're waiting. We're eager. We expect the fulfillment of God's purposes. We're, we're not sort of like, yeah, the, the scriptures say that. The scriptures exclaim it's gonna happen. I don't really understand and, and it's been 2,000 years so I probably won't live through that. That's not the notion that Peter was commanding his readers to have in mind. It says expectancy. You're looking forward to, you're waiting for that day. And he assumes that those who grasp the significance of verse 10, those who grasp the significance of what God has promised in his word about that future day will be continually and constantly looking forward to that. He also notes that expectant believers in verse 12, they hasten, they're hastening this coming day. The day of God there again is a parallel for the day of the Lord. It doesn't refer to different aspects of God's future plans. It's in parallel in this text. It's described in the same way. Burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. It's just another way of saying, albeit a much rarer way biblically, of saying the coming day of the Lord. The term that he uses for hastening could be translated as eager. Eagerly desiring. You're eagerly expecting the Lord to carry out his promised plans and come back. Or as it's translated in, in your New American Standard, hasten, which would indicate that in some way, as the Lord's people wait, and as the Lord's people are carrying out his work in accordance with his word, that that day is drawn ever nearer. The point, regardless of the nuance, is that God's people are active in response to the knowledge of his coming. We're not idle, that's the idea. You ought to be concerned with holiness and godliness, eagerly expecting, eagerly desiring that day to arrive, that day of judgment, that day of salvation, hopeful expectation. Again, verse 12 re-emphasizes the unbelievable event that's described in verse 10. Because of which, that is the day of God, because of that day that's coming, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. The cosmos as we know them will be changed. That's the point. Whether they're refined, whether they're destroyed and recreated, there's going to be a change. And the judgment and blessing motif comes in as we come to verse 13 where he says, but... So in contrast to this burning, in contrast to the elements, according to his promise, again, note, where is all of the view here? God's promise, God's faithfulness. Keep that in mind. It's all about God's promised word and the certainty of what's coming. But according to that promise, Peter says, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This brings to mind an eternal residence where righteousness takes up permanent dwelling. 
after this day, on this day, the judgment, the expectation of what's to come that Peter writes about, evil will be consumed. Evil will be done away with and only what is pure, only what is righteous, only what reflects God's holy character will remain. No sin. No sin of ours, but also no sin from others. No ravages of sin, illness, broken wiring in our brains that cause us to do foolish things. No more merely walking by faith instead of sight. Peter says believers look toward a promise where a new heavens and a new earth, a new dwelling perfectly suited for those who have been bought and saved unto righteousness will dwell. In these verses, he emphasizes its suddenness. He emphasizes the transforming refinement of the world and all that it contains. Evil removed, purged, the earth and its works purified, and then righteousness exalted. Out of the fire, a righteous group remains. That's the idea. And in light of his overarching question, we're to look at this and see that the fire that is to come upon the earth, the fire that the Lord has promised awaits that day, is the fire that's to fuel our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of godliness, our pursuit of all the things we're to be concerned with now as God's people. What's tomorrow and coming tomorrow by God's certain promises is to, is to grip us. Contrary to the example of the soil that we began with that is distracted, that's preoccupied, things that grip our hearts, Peter says the future day of God and all that that will bring with it is to grip our hearts. And being gripped by that is to motivate your holiness, is to motivate your godliness. That is what you're to be concerned with. We're to be concerned with living expectant, righteous lives, eager for the Lord. And the hope of this permanent righteous dwelling in verse 13, the hope of a new heavens and new earth is to also capture our vision uniquely, our longing for that day of God. And then Peter goes on and says, and because of that, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. He says that new heavens and new earth isn't here yet. But because you're, we're looking for it, because we're eagerly awaiting that promise, you're to be motivated to a diligent casting off of sin. And that brings us to the second instruction that directs our present concern. Pursue purity. Pursue purity. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The same terminology for effort that he uses in chapter one, diligence. We're to make every effort to be found without any fault at the Lord's appearing. That's a startling statement. We're to make every effort that we can muster fueled by the grace of God in our lives to be found at the Lord's return on that great day in purity. 
looking forward to righteousness, in other words, Peter says, since we look for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, we're to be enjoined in a pursuit of that righteousness now. In other words, because in the future we're going to live for all eternity in righteousness and purity, we should be actively seeking to have our hearts pure and righteous now. We're to be fitting ourselves for that future dwelling, in other words. This is in contrast to the character of the false teachers. He calls them in this letter stains and blemishes. And then here tells us we're to be spotless and blameless. There's a marked contrast there. Those waiting for the Lord are to be unstained, unblemished, unembarrassed, unashamed. He says that when that happens, that we'll be found in peace. And the peace here is linked with this pursuit of purity. I I believe it's talking about the fact that things that would put us at one level at enmity with Christ have been put off. When I say enmity, I don't mean as if we've lost our salvation, we no longer have peace with God. I mean when we're living in sin, if you're a believer and you're living in unrepentant sin, in a sense, that sin puts you at enmity with Christ. You don't have peace in that arena. He's saying, be pure and blameless. You want to be found in peace. You don't want to have any turmoil before the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. That's the idea. Those who are diligent to be found pure will know the peace and harmony of standing before the Lord without shrinking. He points to the coming day. He points to the good part of the coming day, not just the threatening part, the part that promises righteousness, the part that promises a new heavens and a new earth. And he says, you're to take pains. We're to take pains in our sanctification. We're to take diligent pain being concerned with how we will be revealed when we meet the Lord. Not to earn salvation, but because, as Peter says, he's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, we're to pursue righteousness. I want to ask myself, is Peter really saying this? Is he really saying that because of the Lord's coming, we need to strive to be stain and blemish free? Yes, he is. The antinomianism in your heart might wrestle with that. No, are you adding, it's not adding works. He's saying because of what God's accomplished for you and because of what he will do for you, you are to pursue the blamelessness that's been purchased for you. It's not simply a restatement of positional righteousness or justification. He's not saying that. You don't diligently pursue your justification. That was accomplished for you. You don't diligently pursue being declared righteous. That's been accomplished for you. You're to diligently pursue purity, moral rightness, moral cleanness before Almighty God so that on that day we don't shrink. Be diligent in our efforts. To deny our effort here ultimately, to deny that we have anything to do to to pursue purity, to pursue righteousness would ultimately be to deny and diminish Christ's accomplishments on our behalf that enable us to do that. It's not a grander view of justification to say that we don't strive for purity because we view so highly what Christ did on our behalf. That diminishes it. Because of what Christ did, 
we are called and able to pursue purity. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 28. Similar idea. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, so that on that day, to use Peter's language, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Knowing the promised end, knowing the judgment will come upon evil and knowing the righteousness that God has called his people to dwell in in the future, it should be unthinkable to us that we don't need to be concerned with righteousness now. That's what Peter's getting at. Because you look forward to that day, be concerned with your purity now. God's word, God's promises motivate us to strive. We're to be expectantly righteous. We're to be pursuing purity because without it, we ultimately won't enter the new heavens and the new earth. Pause here before we go through the argument. I, I, we read through this, and I'm compelled to ask myself, compelled to ask you, how often do you actually meditate and think upon the coming day of the Lord? If you're like me, it comes up in moments like this. Or it comes up when you read about it, or when you hear somebody else talk about it. But Peter's language makes clear it should be a regular part of our walk of faith. It should be a regular part of our vision of God's outworking, God's plans, and God's purposes for his Christian on this earth. The reality of a resurrected, returning Messiah is an indispensable part of your sanctification. You must keep in mind the coming day of the Lord. I must keep in mind the coming day of the Lord as a motivation for righteousness. In addition to pursuing righteousness, believers are also called, Peter instructs believers to be concerned on this earth now to, be, to, to understand God's timing. It's kind of a funny transition in the middle of this. Understand God's timing. That's the third instruction that directs our present concern. Verse 15a, regard, count, consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. He brings us back, stitching it back together with what the false teachers were doubting and what he corrected. Remember, the fact that God hasn't done this already is not to be seen as a lack on his part. It's not to be seen as a delay that's outside of his control. It's to be seen as patience, as kindness, as mercy. Peter says those that are looking toward God's future promises are to understand God's timing. Each day that passes... Each day that we have on this earth is a day of experiencing God's gracious patience with humanity and patience with his children as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
Why are we to understand God's timing? Because we're not to be passive while we wait. We're to recognize that while God isn't here, now is the time for unbelievers to repent and believers to pursue purity. Unbelievers are called to repentance and every day that the Lord withholds that coming consummation is a day for repentance. And for Christians, for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, every day that he isn't here is a day to be made more holy, more like him, so that on that coming day we're purified. That's the implication. It's not lack or slowness. Peter says, look, now, now's the time for tireless ministry. Now, before he comes back, this is the time for taking the gospel to the lost. This is the time for shepherding and equipping the flock of God in their pursuit of purity and maturity. You can imagine, how does understanding God's timing help? You can imagine taking the message of Jesus, the message of John the Baptist early in the gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you take that out on the street and somebody's ever has a shred of familiarity with the gospel, it's not that far-fetched to imagine them thinking, that was said 2,000 years ago. Is it, is it really at hand? Peter says, understand God's timing, Christian. Understand that the Lord is being patient and kind with the world that awaits judgment and with those of us who are being purified here. The longer that we wait, we should see that as opportunities for righteousness, opportunities for ministry, opportunities to work out our salvation. Now 15, the second part of 15 down into 16 is, is, gets interesting. Peter introduces a comparison in the middle of his argument and he brings up Paul. He brings up the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul's teaching. He says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. He appeals to Paul's teaching in the middle of this exhortation to Christians to continue on in light of God's future plans. He says, Paul taught on the patience of God, on this so-called delay that the false teachers are throwing around. Paul taught on the fact that believers are to pursue righteousness while they await the coming day of the Lord. Paul and Peter were of the same accord in what he was teaching about that future day. And apparently Peter's opponents were twisting Paul's teaching as it says here that those who are unstable, they distort Paul and the rest of scriptures. And they were using those distortions to support their teaching. And so Peter responds here telling his readers, no, Paul and I are of one accord on this. Just there's a sweet picture. Paul affirms Paul as a beloved brother. And if you know your Bible, that's a sweet thing to do. Sweet thing to affirm this partner in ministry that confronted him to his face forever inscripturated in Galatians. He affirms that he and Paul are teaching the same apostolic message. And outside of the flow of Peter's main argument, there's really interesting bibliological issues here, right? Peter evidently knew of some of Paul's letters and he says they're what? They're scripture. He puts them in the same category as the scriptures. 
He also affirms that Paul was given divine wisdom for his writings. It was the wisdom given him. And, which is kind of a life verse for some of us, Peter indicates that some of Paul's teaching was hard to understand, right? He says, hey, some of the things Paul teaches, they're difficult, they're hard. In mentioning this difficulty then, and he is really trying to point out though, not just general unrelated statements about Paul's teaching, he's tying it to what the false teachers were doing. He's saying these are the areas the false teachers, he calls them untaught and unstable, they're distorting, and he says that's happening to their own destruction. It's a warning about playing fast and loose with the scriptures. It's a warning that to distort the apostolic teaching concerning the coming day of the Lord is to play with fire, literally and figuratively. It will result in your own destruction. In contrast to those distortions, believers are to understand God's timing. Don't be swayed by those who twist the scriptures trying to paint a new picture now that we're 2,000 plus years on from when Christ was on the earth. Don't be swayed by that. Understand God's timing. Each day that passes is not a miscalculation by Almighty God. It's his patience. It's his kindness. It's his forbearance. It's his mercy. And it's a time of preparation for eternity. And his warning about these false teachers and their abuse of God's word leads to a fourth instruction. A fourth instruction that directs our present concern and that is beware of falling. Beware of falling. Verse 17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that the false teachers are distorting the scriptures, knowing that they do that to their own destruction, knowing that they're questioning God's promises, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled man, men and fall from your own steadfastness. The picture there is of being swept away by the false teaching and then as a result of your being swept away by this teaching, ultimately falling from your position of stability in your Christian walk. Remember that concept Rick taught about from chapter one in Second Peter? Spiritual stability, spiritual sure-footedness, that's the idea brought back here at the end of the letter. Those who are caught up and swept away, who are not on guard against those who would distort the teaching of the apostles and the Lord about that coming day, fall from stability. Believers are to stand guard. We're to be on watch. This isn't, Peter's not saying we're to be the discernment police and watch for everyone else. This is a call for you and me to watch what we take in, to be on guard so that we don't fall. That's the initial implication of this. Be on guard that you're not swept away by false teaching. Now, of course, that involves what our brothers and sisters are hearing, and we want to protect them. And as elders and shepherds, it's our job to protect this flock from error. Peter says, you should be concerned with the notion that you would be carried away by false teaching concerning that coming day and that you would fall prey to distortions of truth and fall from stability. That's why there's such a premium placed on careful exegesis. That's why there's such a premium placed on careful preaching. Lives depend on it. The lives of those handling the word of God and as it says in about the false teachers, the lives of those who handle 
the word of God. It's tempting to read this and think, I don't really see how this applies to me. I'm not in this category. Am I really that close to falling? Do I really need to be on guard? I'm not suggesting that you're in danger of walking out tomorrow if you're a normal part of the teaching and discipleship ministry at Mission Road Bible Church and all of a sudden just the drop of a hat, you're gonna abandon all orthodoxy and run headlong into error. But we should heed Peter's warning carefully. Just a few biblical examples. What about Peter himself? Peter is an example in scripture for us of stumbling, stumbling hard, stumbling hard before the Lord's crucifixion and and then his later restoration, and then stumbling on matters of the gospel, which Paul had to confront, or Demas. Demas was a fellow worker with the apostle Paul. And at the end of Paul's ministry, He's called as one who loved the present world and abandoned Paul. Implication there is that he abandoned the truth and the gospel for which Paul was on trial. We need to be careful. We're to be concerned with guarding ourselves. Our concerns are direct the now. God's future promises say, be careful. You need to be concerned now with rightly understanding his promises. Then lastly, Peter turns to an offensive posture against this falling. We're to be on guard, that's defense. Be on guard against what could happen. Be on guard against falling in instability. And in contrast to that falling, he says, believers are to be committed to growth. Believers are to be committed to growth. The fifth and final instruction that directs our present concerns is develop spiritual maturity. What are you to be concerned with in light of Christ's coming, in light of the day of the Lord? You're to be concerned with developing spiritual maturity. But grow, don't fall, verse 17, but grow, verse 18, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, this provides sort of a thematic bookend along with verse 17 to the beginning of the letter. He says in verses two and three of chapter one, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. There's no Christian that's arrived. There's no Christian that's on this earth who's presently glorified, who presently has no need to be diligent in their pursuit of righteousness, who is to be vigilant in casting aside sin, not one. Peter says grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't passive, we're to to be ever increasing in our spiritual maturity in light of that God's returning, that Christ is returning, that that day is coming. Grow in grace. It's, a, it's all of grace, we often say, and here he's, grow in grace. We begin our lives of faith by grace. We grow in our experience of grace as the Lord accomplishes his will within us. We grow in our demonstration of his grace as our lives reveal his fruit and his work. We grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a reminder that our progress in faith is never separated from the person of Christ, ever. Our growth consists of being conformed to him as we learn from him and and we walk in fellowship with him. 
Developing spiritual maturity requires diligence, where to grow, and it requires being connected intimately to our Savior. Those who are the Lord's develop spiritual maturity. Peter ends his charge saying, what kind of people ought you to be by commending us to grow, to pursue holiness, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I believe an implication of this text is that there is no heaven, no new heaven and no new earth and no permanent dwelling in righteousness apart from these things. Because, Peter says, those who are truly saved, as he brings up at the beginning of the letter, will be diligent to pursue these things. These concerns do mark your life if you're a Christian. It may be in fits and starts. It may be with setbacks. But they mark your life. And the view, the vision of God's future plans keep us motivated for that. The letter closes with a doxology, a a brief expression of praise, an ascription of glory to God. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This doxology beautifully connects this here and then, this now and future idea. The instructions that Peter gives direct our concerns now as we walk and while we wait for the day of eternity when God will be glorified, when Jesus will be fully manifested in all of his glory to be glorified by the righteous who are pure and spotless and blameless for all eternity. No shadow, no veil, pure glory with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. Eschatology is a study of last things. Right? That, that word generally invokes curiosity. It it's a, makes us go, ooh, you know, I really, I want to hear that. Maybe the, it's mysterious. Sometimes it, it's the, I don't know, it's the higher plane. We view it as kind of the higher plane of digging into the scriptures and, and seeing what's really there when we mine carefully. But eschatology in the scriptures is not for idle curiosity. It's interesting, the eschatology that Peter gives us here actually is not for prophecy conferences and it's not for charts about the end times. It's for our everyday walk right now when we leave these walls. It is for this present evil age. It should impact how we relate to the world, how we relate to one another, how we approach work. The coming day of the Lord should affect how you love your wife, how you love your spouse, how you parent your kids, how you interact with unbelievers. Since God has promised, this present evil age is going to be consumed. To use Peter's words, since these things are going to be burned up in this way, how should we then live? That's the question. A clear vision of God's promised future should shake us from spiritual slumber. A robust view of the day of the Lord. A robust view of God's future consummation of all things provides heat to cold devotion. And when the affairs of this world smother our zeal, when the entanglements When the brambles, when the briars preoccupy us with now and our zeal is squelched, God's promises about the coming day, the coming day of Jesus Christ, those are to be the fire that heat our pursuit 
of holiness and righteousness while we wait his return.